You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. But what about those small business masterminds who succeed at making their money work harder? They do that by having a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, which now earns 5% annual percentage yield. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The less your business spends, the more margin you keep. But today, everything costs more. So smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one proven platform, helping you reduce IT costs, maintenance costs, and manual errors. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move to NetSuite. Now through April 15th, NetSuite is offering a one-of-a-kind flexible financing program. Head to NetSuite.com slash earnings right now. NetSuite.com slash earnings. and welcome to What Goes Up, a weekly markets podcast. My name is Mike Regan. I'm a senior editor at Bloomberg. And I'm Valdana Hyrick, a cross-asset reporter with Bloomberg. And this week on the show, well, sticky inflation, a slowing economy, even bank runs. Stocks have had a lot of headwinds this year, and yet the market is still pricing in a soft landing or a scenario under which inflation is subdued, but the economy avoids a deep recession. At least that's according to this week's guest, who is the deputy CEO of a major hedge fund firm. But does the market have it right? We're going to get into it with him, Vildana. But first, I got to ask. Are you going to ask me a basketball question? I could. Don't. No. I don't know anything. You know, no I just know that the game was on really late and everybody was mad. Yeah. Right? It started about, after that, nine or something. That's about right. No, I was going to ask you um, if you watched MTV as a child. Of course. Of course. Oh my you gosh, did. Cribs. Cribs. <laughs> well, see, in my day, MTV still was playing videos. I don't. I don't uh-huh. think I saw many cribs. Uh-huh. Okay, so um, th- my craziest thing. The reason I ask is my craziest thing of the week harkens back to the early MTV days, and I'm wondering if you'll even know what we're talking about. 1980s. When did MTV start? It was like mid 80s. Yeah. Okay. Late 80s, maybe. No, they they played videos when I was young too, but they also had like really fun shows. It was Cribs was your main appeal. Cribs. What else did they have? Oh my gosh, they had Room. Jersey What's it Shore. Called? Oh, was that an MTV show? Yeah. They yeah. had Room Raiders. Room Raiders. Yeah, which is just like a really gross show. Like somebody will go into your room and like literally go through all your stuff <laughs> and try to embarrass you. Yeah, they had some good shows. I miss that. I guess Jersey Shore was. That yeah. was that. Yep. That's a, that's that's a gem. That's no, a gem. <laughs> In fact, my daughter ran into Pauly D. Wow. On her spring break. Where? In Florida. On the Jersey Shore? In Panama City, Florida, <laughs> which is, I guess, is like the Jersey Shore of Florida. More yeah. Or less. But anyway, we digress. We digress because our, our guest actually is really far removed from the Jersey Shore. He's, he's. Not really the Jersey Island Shore. Oh, that's I believe true. is where. He's he, in his the UK. Firm is based. Adult, yeah. Uh, yeah. Not quite the same Jersey Shore. Not the same. Maybe a nicer Jersey Shore. But anyway, Mark Jones, Man Group Deputy CEO, is joining us this week. Mark, thank you so much for joining us and welcome to the show. Pleasure. Glad to join you. And glad to be far away from the New Jersey Shore, right? (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a different one on our side of the Atlantic. (laughs) Um, Okay, so you sent us a couple notes before we started, and you said we are in a tough period for large asset owners. And I wanted to ask you about this and what the backdrop is right now, what maybe some of your biggest worries out there 
are and just sort of conceptualize this for us. Yeah, sure. Um, so I, I think if you're a large asset owner, you've obviously, you've got some structural risk asset positions in equities and bonds. And you've had this very benign period where inflation just hasn't been a problem, well, certainly in developed markets. And obviously, it's been back with a vengeance over the past 18 months or so. And getting out of the way of that, when you have those structural long asset um, positions is very, very tough for people. Uh, and actually, frankly, harking back to how do I risk manage my positions in an inflationary environment? Um, last year was one of the most difficult that most of our clients will have had for at least a decade and, and possibly significantly more. And they're definitely still concerned about what do we do uh, now that this you know, insidious sort of force on real assets that hasn't been around for a long period of time is back. What do they do with their allocations? Where do they need to move things around? Who can help them? Where's the alpha? Do they still need to increase the private market allocations they've had in the past? Just a sort of a long, long list of debates that they're having in a way, frankly, that we haven't heard from them for a long, long period of time. You know, Mark, in the, in the intro, I mentioned that, uh, as you mentioned in your notes, it sure does look like equity markets at least are pricing in a soft landing uh, here. Mm -hmm. Reading the rest of your notes, I'm not convinced you believe they're right. Could this rally be a big head fake, do you think? Yeah, I think the risk reward in equities is is very, very tough at the moment because, as you say, they're, they're effectively implying that the Fed does manage to navigate this and land things perfectly. They've got an incredibly difficult job on their hands. I definitely wouldn't want to be in their shoes right now uh, because you've got very material risks both sides. Um, and, and indeed, you've now got financial stability coming up as a third risk that, frankly, I wasn't thinking about six months previously. Uh, but the, the standard ones, which clearly have been the ones on their mind for most of this period are, okay, we do think we're going to cause a drop in economic growth, but can we time that perfectly? Can we have a mild recession without, you know, major, major job losses? And every time, you, you know, you hear him stand up, he does make the point of it's better to take pain now, otherwise it's worse long term. They understand what they're doing. They understand the potential consequences. Can they um, get the dial right there? And you know, economies are not things where the dials work desperately well. Um, and the sort of feedback from what you do to how they behave is that perfect. Uh, and then clearly the risk, the other side, which again, you know, they've been talking about previously, if there's sustained inflation, they have to get it back to 2%. That is their mandate. They will have to be higher for longer if it doesn't move down. And the path between those two things is pretty hard. And then to throw the the third problem in, which we've obviously seen in the last month or so is, okay, do we put enough stress in the financial system here that they suddenly have to start worrying about financial stability as the you know, the other piece of their mandate that has been in the background for most of the last 18 months or so, and then suddenly came very, very aggressively into view with SVB. I do not envy him his job at the moment. <laughs> I certainly don't. I don't think anyone wants that job right now. <laughs> I really don't. You say you're expecting more volatility ahead. Like, what are you expecting? What are you expecting from the Fed? I read some interesting notes from some of the big banks this week. One of them said when they're talking to clients, what clients say is they're sort of frustrated with the rally that we've seen in stocks. I guess if you were not positioned for it, you'd be frustrated with. So what are you expecting going forward? Yeah, I think, I mean, I think equities are difficult because we haven't really seen the cut in um, earnings. We've obviously had some drift down in earnings expectations, but nothing too material. 
so that's definitely one leg, which is just the fundamental piece. And then the other is just a flow piece. You know, we are starting to see people move back, obviously money markets out of banks, but also, you know, into credit and government bond positions in a way that they just haven't had for years because there hasn't been enough return there to attract people. So whether that's the consumer or whether that's big institutional clients starting to come back to an asset class that frankly had fallen relatively out of favor. And some of that flow of funds is also an issue for equities as just people move money around. So I I think it's, as I said, it's a tough tightrope to walk. If you look at equities right now, I think there's plenty of other places where you can get comfortable returns without the same risk profile. And I think you're seeing plenty of people make some of those allocation moves. The US is obviously a bit of an outlier in that the the balance is a bit better in some other markets. The S&P is remarkably calm in the face of everything we've seen recently. Yeah, Mark, I, uh, there's some comments from your colleague, Luke Ellis, the CEO of Man Group, a few weeks ago that really sort of caught my eye. One thing he said was central banks will have to break stuff to tame inflation. I think the uh, mission accomplished there and, and to some degree. I don't think that's what they thought they were going to break. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, you never quite know what's going to break. But uh, he also said a significant number of banks won't exist in 12 to 24 months, and we have not seen the lows in equities this cycle. Now, uh, these comments were a couple of weeks old. A lot has changed. Mm-hmm. It seems like the fire in the U.S. regional banking system, knock on wood, if, if it's not completely put out, it's not raging like it once was. The the reaction from the Federal Reserve, the FDIC was very aggressive. You know, was that sort of the house view there about, you know, the banking system being bracing for more failures? Do you th- has anything changed about that? How are you thinking about the state of the banking system? I think he was talking at a point when the market was pretty febrile. Yeah. Um, in, in full, what he's actually talking about is, look, there's the U.S. regional banks in particular. The U.S. has an incredible number of banks compared to virtually every other major market. There's obviously stress amongst them. There's likely to be consolidation as some of the stronger players take on some of the weaker players. We've obviously seen the extreme version of that where it's been via FDIC rescues and then um, resales. But just more generally, you would expect to con- see consolidation. There may be um, some failures. You know, Banks do fail. That's part of the nature of the business model. Um, but it was, a much, it was much more around the banking system generally, either consolidating or maybe some going out of business. Um, we did we did manage to trigger a comment from the Bank of England saying that they were comfortable with the the um, the banking system off the back of that. So that was definitely not an intended effect, <laughs> and maybe slightly taken out of context in a market where everyone was feeling a little bit more scared than they are today. Yeah, yeah. Um, but no, we. I mean, look, there's there's definitely still um, some stress in the banking system, and I saw some of the big investment bank um, defaults back sort of post in the financial crisis, and I remember telling people post that look. The key thing is not to be there if there's a default of a bank. And that was the lesson that I thought everyone had learned in 08. And I spent years telling everyone, look, when we get bank runs in future, they're going to be faster because everyone's going to remember 08. And it turned a bit into the the sort of horror story by the fire because we didn't have very many um, defaults in banks for a long period of time. And then we just saw, obviously, the speed recently, which frankly, even though I was expecting bank runs to be faster, I was amazed at how fast really quite big institutions went from functioning to into FDIC hands. Um, so SVB obviously is the one that people focused on. I actually think Signature is the more interesting one in some ways where there was almost no noise because everyone was focused on SVB and then it was gone over the weekend. 
which is a remarkable sign of the speed of liquidity withdrawal in the current world. I wanted to ask you about that, actually. Uh, I, w- I wanted to ask you about the speed with which we saw some of these bank runs actually happen. And obviously, we have had some weeks go by and we've had some retrospective and lots of news reports about what actually happened and how, you know, different tech figures were talking to each other in different chat groups and whatever else. Can you characterize what happened and sort of the astoundingness at, at which and the speed at which it happened? I mean, it is just classic bank runs. Um, so it's it's just liquidity withdrawal and banks are levered institutions and, you know, they can't cope with some level of liquidity withdrawal. The thing that's different is clearly the sheer speed of, of uh, at which it happened. And as I say, all of the stories, you know, all the press commentary is around SVB and the concentration of the client base there and, you know, effectively, did they create their own bank run? But then go look at Signature where it's not obvious that any of that was happening, but exactly the same thing happened at very, very high speed. You know, look at the money coming out of Credit Suisse at great speed. Again, that's not coordinated action. That's just people reading press reports and the world is much more attuned to some of this information. Clearly, generally, financial information percolates far, far faster than it used to. But I don't think, if you look at the set of them, I don't think you can say it's sort of specifically a social media thing or a concentrated set of clients thing or a tech thing, because that's not the case with the other institutions that ran into liquidity issues. I think it's much more around general speed of information flow combined with frankly, just a classic tail risk with banking as a business model, which is, you know, bank runs happen. They will happen again. They've happened for decades. I'm not sure when the first one was, but it won't have been that long after the first bank was started. (laughs) That's probably true. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication, it's fortitude, and it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years, and it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest-growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it, or you think you do. The people in the spotlight, athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do, that's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. 
Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. Mark, I wanted to talk about sort of the climate of the hedge fund industry itself. You know, sort of a mixed year in 2022 for a lot of funds. Uh, CTAs, trend-following funds did did very well. There were a lot of outflows from some funds. Uh, MedGroup actually managed to book about more than $3 billion worth of inflows. And I was looking at some of the better performing uh, funds. Uh, the AHL Diversified Fund was up uh, more than 13%. AHL Alpha up 11%. Now, of course, some of the long-only strategies, it was tough to post a positive uh, return last year given the markets, but pretty impressive re- returns for some of these AHL funds. I wonder if you could break down for us what worked. Is it to oversimplify it, to to just call it trend following with some of these strategies, is there more going on or um, was that really a big part of it? it? Trend following was definitely a big driver. So I think um, systematic funds did very well last year in macro markets. Um, there were some big trends um, to invest in. So some of the commodities moves at the start, obviously the bond moves throughout the dollar move um, was a big positive contributor. So there were plenty of places um, for positive returns to be had. And CTAs are very good at capturing those sorts of macro moves. And I think when you so when you step back, we've had this very prolonged period where all developed markets have basically been doing the same things with interest rate policy. There's been this very, very high correlation. And then that's clearly pushed into a bunch of other asset classes. It's generally dampened volatility down. It's increased correlation. It's been quite a tough environment for alpha, or at least there's less opportunities than what you would sort of normally have seen pre that um, period of very, very low interest rates. What we're moving back into now is something that's much more akin to 08. So you've seen, uh, I mean, actually equity vol hasn't increased in the same way, but in a lot of other asset classes, you've seen quite material step-ups um, whether it's that in fixed income or in commodities or in currencies, you know, there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more differentiation in how countries are managing their interest rates because of some of the core macroeconomic differences between them, where inflation is, where energy policy is, uh, in each of those places, strength of the job market. That's exactly the sort of environment that suits some of these macro strategies over time because there's just a lot more opportunity. There's a, the risk management skills are a lot more relevant when things are moving around in in that sort of a way. So yeah, trends were absolutely critical to a lot of the, the strong outlier returns last year. But we think that environment's going to persist. Um, and frankly, it feels like that's you know, the future decade's going to be a lot more like that rather than just the next year or so. Really? So 2023 will another good year for trend following, you think? Uh, I mean, individual. I mean, the the, the last um, month or so has been tougher for trend followers, um, specifically because of the interest rate uh, moves post SVB. Right. That's in the nature of the strategy. You'll have some difficult periods. They work over time, but it's a uh, higher volatility and lower correlation between things. So at some level, just much more macro uncertainty. In a, in the sort of simplified way of putting that, that's the environment when you want strategies which can help you navigate that uncertainty, and that. Uh, heart is what trend followers are very good at doing over time. And I think we, I mean, who knows, in 20 years, 30 years time, I suspect we'll look back now and go the previous 10 years with the outlier rather than the other way around. Okay. And you said there's a bigger opportunity set for alpha than over the last decade when interest rates were near zero. Can you talk about what you mean by that? 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's because of that higher volatility. So there's more there's more risk in markets, which if you've got skill, is the opportunity set. Obviously, you've got to have the skill in the first place. Um, similarly, within equities, you know, there's more dispersion um, within equities than there have been for a prolonged period of time. Again, if you are good at making those investment choices, that's a great environment for you because there's just a bigger opportunity to make money for your clients. You've got to have the skill. Otherwise, it's just risk with out the positive return. Um, so I think it's it's sort of a more difficult environment because the risk is higher, but where you've got expertise, that's what you want. You know, our job is to take risk on behalf of clients when there's more opportunities in the world because it's a riskier period. You can add more benefit to them. Uh, and that's that's definitely what we're looking to do from here. I think what he's trying to say is he has the skill. <laughs> The firm. There's a there's a <laughs> one and a half thousand double PhDs and the like sitting around me who definitely have the skill. <laughs> double PhDs. Ooh. You got to call them doctor, doc, doctor, doctor, doctor. We do have some genuine rocket scientists. So on any day that you're feeling um, smart yourself, you can just go talk to someone and immediately <laughs> feel a lot smaller. So I, I always joke about this. It's amazing how many actual rocket scientists find their way into investing and in, yeah. in quant quant. Uh, We've investing. interviewed some of them. <laughs> Mark, I think one really sort of interesting sea change that we saw this year with Silicon Valley Bank is a greater focus on private markets, uh, venture capital, especially in Silicon Valley, and sort of this notion that, boy, they had a great run. There was so much sort of interest in private markets um, that almost seems to me like the end of an era uh, once Silicon Valley Bank broke. I mean, is 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 that an exaggeration, do you think? I mean, was that whole private market craze a low interest rate uh, phenomenon? I mean, is is has this has everything changed now for, say, private versus public, the appeal of, of each type of investment? Yeah. So, I mean, look, we, we've obviously had this huge trend in asset management um, for, I mean, it's more than a decade old now, arguably two of increased allocation into private markets over time um, from the big asset owners. And the period of low interest rates definitely helped um, that trend because you just had to go somewhere new for returns than rather than the traditional asset classes. Um, I don't think we're going to see some huge pivot away from that because there's a lot of money allocated and you can't pull it out quickly. It takes time. Plus, frankly, they are useful sources of return in people's portfolio. But I do think the speed of that trend is definitely at a minimum going to slow down. And I think for a lot of people, they're going to tilt back towards public markets for the first time in really quite a long time because it's been relatively inexorable of adding to their private allocations year by year by year. And that's for a couple of reasons. One, some of the stuff that we touched on earlier where there's actually there's more return um, from some traditional asset classes in particular on the fixed income side. So people go, actually, I don't need to reach out on the risk spectrum. I can meet my investment goals with some much more traditional returns, you know, investment grade credit, whatever it may be. Um, and they, they're much happier if they can do that in a lower risk way and meet whatever their, you know, their retirees obligations or what, whatever their responsibilities are. And so that piece definitely is a big driver. And then I think the other thing is we saw the benefit of liquidity. Um, the UK obviously had a relatively spectacular blow up in the gilt market. Um, last year, you had clients who suddenly had a very, very strong liquidity need to meet that big, big market move. 
and they were having to sell assets to to meet cash calls. And suddenly that reminder of things that I can liquidate if I need it in a crisis and the value of that so I'm not a forced seller of something else. We'd sort of forgotten that as a you know a key benefit of liquidity, but I think we've had a few reminders in some of the sort of panic periods of that benefit of more liquid assets. So both for a risk management piece, a balance piece, and a core source of return piece, I think you're going to see tilts back. Private markets are well established as parts of investors' portfolios, so it's not that they're just going to drop them, but I think the speed of growth is going to change. Okay, so if we are seeing a tilt back towards more liquid assets. Where do you already, or maybe where where are you foreseeing that money actually going? From our business, clearly the hedge fund business is a big part of what we do. Uh, and some of the, the systematic strategies, in particular macro systematic strategy, I think people are looking at again, they clearly saw them had, had a good year last year. And I think they agree with what I just discussed around the environment suiting those sorts of strategies and needing something nimble to help them move around. So, um, Strategies that are able to take macro risk successfully on on behalf of clients, that's definitely a big source of demand. Um, liquid alternatives um, as well, so sources of return that aren't equity or bonds, but again, that you can liquidate if you need them, so you get that protection in the portfolio. And then, frankly, just you know, plain vanilla fixed income um, at whatever risk level people are looking at. You know, whether it's high yield or investment grade or um, not so much our business, but govies, I think people are definitely coming back to just because it works now. It's not, for a long period, it was all risk and no reward. We just saw the risk materialize last year, but you've now got back to an environment where there's actually some reward again, so you can make a plausible case for it being a, a bigger part of a portfolio. Um, so a, a mix of liquid alternatives, particularly systematic macro, and then um, some core um, fixed income in particular, um, that I think people are coming back to after a number of years of not really being focused on it. Right. I mean, when you can get yield in a money market fund these days, uh, it's it's such a a dramatic change of uh, climate from what we're used to in the you know the post TFC era. It's it's pretty amazing, really. But Mark, I used to joke last year that they passed a law that every podcast guest had to talk about inflation. Um, <laughs> yep. This year, well, I've done that. So <laughs> yeah, you've, you've guilty as charged. This yep. year, uh, I think the law is that you have to talk about AI uh, at, at yep. some level, and I feel like you know, at some level, you must have some rocket scientists already in the firm uh, yep. using AI. But I'm curious how you're thinking about it. You know, obviously, this Chat GPT sort of caught the world by storm and and has everybody wondering about how AI is going to be used in all industries, but mm. investing especially. So I'm, I'm curious if it made as big of a splash in your world. Is there a, a bigger focus on AI now because of this? And if you could tell us, you know, where you see it going as an investment tool and, and maybe a little bit about how you're using it now, if, if at all. I mean, look, machine learning, as we would have called it, but AI in the sort of popular vernacular that's been a big part of some of the research efforts here for a number of years. Um, you know, we use those techniques in various of the strategies. You've got to be an expert to deploy it successfully in finance, though, in terms of running money. Um, naive approaches are very dangerous, frankly. Um, so you need the human expertise alongside some of those techniques. Uh, the bit that the entire world has got wildly excited about over the last couple of weeks, um, so some of the generative AI, 
I actually think is one of the first times that the hype is appropriate against the technology. So whether that's useful in the pure investment decision side, that's definitely to be determined. But in our wider business, using that as a way to help people do all manner of commercial tasks that we need and commercial processes that we need, absolutely. You know, we clearly want people experimenting across the whole business of figuring out how can I use this to make myself more productive. Uh, I think you're going to see that, frankly, in almost all industries because it really is a remarkable step forward on the technology side. And I say that normally when these things come out, my view is, okay, let's wait and see. Everyone always overhypes them and says innovation's always increasing. Doesn't show up in the productivity to statistics at the government level. So I'll believe it when I see it. This one I genuinely think is going to have a big impact across most of the business world as people figure out how to deploy it. Right. Interesting. Are our podcast hosts okay? <laughs> <laughs> I think you are safe. I think I saw some report from one of the sell-side banks which was listing um, jobs that were at risk and they missed sell-side research report writers <laughs> somewhere high up the list. <laughs> Maybe that was no, not a mistake, yeah. Success is more than a destination. It's a path you take one step at a time. It's dedication. It's fortitude. And it's the work, passion, and grit inside of us that comes before all recognition. That's what Stiefel has been doing for over 130 years. And it's why Stiefel is one of the fastest growing wealth management firms in the country. And Stiefel goes beyond traditional wealth management to offer you a full suite of banking services, direct access to one of the industry's largest equity research franchises, and a leading middle market investment bank. Quietly, yet strategically, Stiefel has built a company and culture unlike any firm on Wall Street. Because success is the drive it takes to keep pushing. It's the passion to keep investing. It's the best of each of us, made better by the best in all of us. And that is where success meets success. Find a financial advisor at Stiefel.com. That's S-T-I-F-E-L.com. Stiefel, Nicholas & Company, Incorporated. Member SIPC and NYSE. You know success when you see it. Or you think you do. The people in the spotlight. Athletes, actors, artists. But what about the people behind the scenes? You know, the ones who make it all happen. The lighting engineers, the sideline photographers, the caterers. They're small business masterminds. And if there's one thing they have in common, it's making their money work harder. That's why they have a business bank account with QuickBooks Money, where they are now earning a generous 5% annual percentage yield. Yes, 5% APY. Making your money work as hard as you do? That's how you business differently. Learn more about QuickBooks Money at quickbooks.com slash 5APY. Banking services provided by Green Dot Bank. Member FDIC. Only funds and envelopes earn APY. APY can change at any time. The other thing I think they're probably going to pass a law that we have to talk about is commercial real estate and the credit cycle. I mean, this banking, and I, you know, I don't know if you really should use the word crisis. You know, what's so unusual, Mark, is to have this banking turbulence, we'll call it, uh, triggered by interest rate risk and deposit flows rather than uh, credit, uh, you know. Uh, but I do feel like the, the focus now is shifting towards, uh, especially that in the U.S. Uh, and probably, I'm sure, in, in uh, uh, the U.K. to the uh, commercial real estate office 
uh, REITs here in the U.S. How are you thinking about the credit market? Has has it? I mean, is that the next candidate to look for as far as the central banks breaking something? I mean, is that the next shoe to drop? Do you think? I think we've got a bit of time because most um, large sort of segments of borrowers took the opportunity to push um, maturity out when rates were so low. I mean, obviously saw that on the consumer side with a bunch of the refinancing of mortgages in the US. You saw it quite a lot on the corporate side where there's really not much in maturities this year or even that much next year. Uh, And similarly on the real estate side, because interest rates were very attractive and you were asleep at the wheel if you weren't doing um, something in credit at that point in time. The bit that we're worried about midterm is, okay, but if you had to refinance now, how many of those businesses can actually cope with where the interest coupon would be, uh, whether that's real estate, whether that's the consumer, whether that's some of the sort of highly levered corporates. And I'm sure there are all sorts of people sitting in various offices around the US and the wider world, sweating and hoping that interest rates come down considerably before they have to do that trade. Um, Because there will be a lot of assets that need a new capital structure at that point in time and they'll either need an equity injection or they'll need some very beneficial credit provider but i don't think it's near term because the maturity dates are just they're far enough away people are going to have to start looking at it next year maybe the back end of this year some people but we've still got a reasonable period of time and that most credits are still quite healthy at the moment you know, I, I wonder if trying to raise uh, capital in the equity market, as Silicon Valley Bank tried to do, is uh, sort of uh, radioactive this year. Yeah, I mean, obviously, most large um, sort of equity markets are relatively shut for new issuance. Um, some secondary stuff's getting done, um, but not at anything like the volume that you would need if interest rates stay here and you're just going to need equity going into quite a lot of asset classes to improve the cap structures. Um, so, I mean, look, there's a lot that's going to have to be done in, in quite a few markets. I just think we're 12 months away from it, probably. But so what everybody's talking about is a credit crunch or credit tightening. I'm wondering if you think there's a difference between the two or like what the more severe scenario might look like. Yeah, I, mean, I think cre- I'd normally distinguish the two as sort of credit crunch is just the absence of provision. <laughs> you, know, you just can't get things done or there's no sort of clearing price where things can get done. That's when you just get large default waves. And I think it's it's just hard to tell right now where that's going to be because it is going to be so much around where credit and rates are in 12 months forward. Um, if things stay here, I think you're going to have a decent pickup in defaults. And I say that as someone who's heard about a default wave coming for 10 years and it's just never turned up. And the view that distressed debt is the place to be on the sort of hedge fund strategy side and actually the opportunity has been relatively limited. But I do think we're getting to that point where, you know, when you hear the Fed talk about the lagged effect of interest rates into the economy, that's part of what they're talking about is while people can hunker down and they've got fixed rates, it doesn't bite them. It doesn't hit their cash flow. They kind of know it's coming and maybe they change their behavior a little bit. But when they're not actually paying the higher coupon, it's not fully in their behavior. When you've actually got to refinance and figure out what you do, whether you're a consumer and you got your mortgage coming up or, or you're a corporate and you go, okay, do I have to look at my cost structure because I've now got to make this higher interest payment? That's really when it bites. Um, and I don't think we've seen most people respond, whether that's 
corporates, real estate, consumer to that move yet because it hasn't actually started to hit their pocket. Mark Jones, Deputy CEO of Man Group, joining us from London. Uh, such a pleasure to catch up with you, Mark, and, and hear your thoughts on the market. Uh, really fascinating. We can't let you go just yet, though. Uh, we do have a tradition here. The craziest things we saw in markets this week. I have a good one. You got a good one? All yeah. Right, let's hear it. I'm sure you saw it. Dogecoin rose 30% <laughs> because Elon Musk put a picture of the little doggy on the Twitter homepage. <sighs> I, and I ch- I looked. I went on Twitter and I found it. I, yeah, I have it on mine. Yeah, yeah it's just yeah. a little happy dog. I I don't get it. I don't. Yeah, Mark. I I assume uh, man is not exposed to Dogecoin and in, in, in <laughs> <laughs> not that I'm aware of. I'm sure someone has some personally. <laughs> Someone's got some in their private account. Uh, how about you, Mark? You see anything crazy in markets recently? I was I was thinking about that as you asked the question, and it's. The odd thing about this week is having had a bunch of things that sort of ate on the Richter scale right. last week was, uh, to, to borrow a quote from Sherlock Holmes, it felt like the dog that didn't bark. <laughs> like it was a remarkably quiet week in markets, given quite how dramatic things were previously. Um, so almost the thing that was most of note is how little happened, given how chaotic it was um, prior to that. I think the thing I thought was most interesting uh, as someone who runs a a financial services institution was just seeing the change in CEO at UBS as they start to go through what will be an absolutely enormous change project there. Uh, And just interesting to see that shift back to the previous CEO. But actual market moves, genuinely, I think the absence of anything dramatic was the most striking thing last week. I love the Sherlock Holmes quote, the dog that didn't bark. If I remember, that was because the thief... Was the owner of the dog? Is that right? Ah, spoiler. Something like uh, that. It's, I think it's, I read this to my son recently. I think it's the, because the dog doesn't bark, you know somebody didn't go past, if I remember correctly. Yeah. Don't spoil it. I'd have to go back. I know we've had 100 years to read it, but don't spoil it. <laughs> All right. It's about a horse being stolen, but I forget the details. <laughs> I know, I'm trying to remember it. I think, yeah, it's either that, yeah, well... We're not going to figure it out here, but a good quote nonetheless. It kind of makes me worried that the dog wasn't barking in markets last week. I, mm-hmm. I feel like that's that's an Suspicious. ominous sign. Yeah. yeah. But uh, all right, my crazy thing also somewhat involves some good British fiction for you. I know your favorite Vildana is a quote unquote tatty first edition of Harry Potter. Harry Potter, I knew and it. And the Philosopher's Stone. Tatty meaning it's just it's a mess. I guess yeah. it's lacking a spine. Protective plastic was peeled off. Pages were yellowed. But it is one of the first edition hardbacks. There were only 500 first mm. editions of that book printed. 300 went to local libraries. So this is oh, somewhat rare. rare. But I'm going to make it harder. Okay. Because we're going to play Prices Precise, Mark. You ready? Ooh. I thought okay. this had something to do with MTV. That's the other item that oh. went up on oh, auction. Oh, my gosh. Okay. A giant gong used on MTV. Uh, Tina Turner actually stood upside down and banged it with her feet one time, if that helps you. Uh, that sold at auction, according to the New York Post. And according to the BBC, a whiskey collection rescued by divers from a 128-year-old shipwreck. The SS Wallachia sank in the Firth of Clyde in 1895 while carrying a collection of whiskey and beer. Wilkinson's famous liquor whiskey was recovered from the wreck. So 
It's time to play the game show. What fetched the highest price at auction? And give me your estimate. Was it A, the giant gong on MTV, the tatty first edition of Harry Potter and the Philosopher's Stone, or seven bottles and half bottles, so some are half bottles, and one bottle of beer, actually, McEwen's Export Beer, was also recovered in this whiskey collection rescued from a 128-year-old shipwreck. Okay. What's, I, what, I know what, what I'm going to go the with. highest? I'm, d- I'm definitely going with the whiskey. Not the t- I like the word tatty, but I can't go with that. <laughs> definitely so, the whiskey. All right, and what's your, your dollar figure, pound figure? My pound figure. Okay, I'm going to go with 750,000 pounds. 750,000 pounds yep. for 128-year-old shipwreck yeah. whiskey. That's cool, you know, like people like whiskey, but also it has a it's, nice it's story got a nice behind story it. To it. Yeah. All right, Mark, as a uh, expert in valuations. Well, firstly, I'd like to sell you some whiskey. <laughs> <laughs> Mark's got a few bottles to unload. To build yeah. Hopefully no one paid too much for the 128-year-old bottle of beer on the side. <laughs> uh, ooh, that's hard. I think I'll go with Harry Potter. Harry I Potter? I think it's going to be a lot lower. Yeah, what's your... Uh, Price tag on Harry Potter? 150,000. 150,000 pounds. You guys are very generous bidders, I will oh. say. Mark wins. Wow. It was the, the Harry Potter. I can't oh. believe I gave you a Harry Potter book and you. Uh, and I didn't choose it. It sold for uh, 20,160 pounds, so about $25,000. That's it. <laughs> it was tatty, though. <laughs> All right. The Giant Gone used on MTV sold for 15,300. Now you could be right about the whiskey because it hasn't sold yet. This oh. is it's estimated to sell for three to four thousand pounds it? for the whole collection. So okay. about five thousand. So maybe co- oh someone gosh. comes in and bids it up to really one hundred and fifty. But uh, listeners of what go what goes up, go out there and, b- and bid this thing up. Yeah, you can sell me some books and I'll sell you some whiskey. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, the problem with the hundred and whatever year old whiskey. That was picked up from the bottom of the ocean is it's got a great story, but it tastes terrible, I think. I have no idea. Yeah. The beer I wouldn't touch, but the whiskey, yeah. I have no clue. Right. I don't even like whiskey. Well <laughs> Mark uh Mark Jones, I think just proved why he is deputy CEO yes. of Man Group. Guy knows and I'm not the top priced asset when he hears it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and he'll be sending some collections of his whiskey to you. Yeah. I'll bid it up. A bargain. <laughs> Mark, great to catch up with you. I hope we can have you back someday. It was great. Pleasure. Great being with you. Thank you so much for joining us. What Goes Up? We'll be back next week. Until then, you can find us on the Bloomberg Terminal website and app or wherever you get your podcasts. We'd love it if you took the time to rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts so more listeners can find us. And you can find us on Twitter. Follow me at Reganonymous. Vildana Hyrick is at Vildana Hyrick. You can also follow Bloomberg Podcasts at Podcasts. What Goes Up is produced by Stacey Wong. Thanks for listening. See you next time.
To address our new climate reality, the world needs radical solutions. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment, hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash Green Festival.